Alrighty. Um, so I got some places we can go if there aren't any questions. But first, we'll open it up for any questions, y'all. See, oh my God, native. Just said y'all. Um, might have. So remember, wait for the microphone. Oh, in the back. Um, I didn't get B. Oh, I missed a blank. Uh oh. Yeah. Hold on. Um, B. Three B. Two B. Three B. Three B. All nations. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all nations. I've been managing my time poorly lately, and so today when I got to point three and I saw we were at time, I was like, oh, had to move. Um, so in my head, I think I had another half hour, so uh, I, had to, I had to sort of book it. But no, remember Luke's gospel ends with Jesus saying, thus it was written about the Messiah, that the Messiah must suffer, die, and raise on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be, must be proclaimed in his name, to all nations. And we can gloss over that because we think, well, of course, everyone's invited. But it, 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 that day and place, that's huge development and one that the book of Acts chronicles the early church wrestled with for a bit. Wouldn't the Gentiles have to become Jews? Don't, wouldn't they have to accept circumcision to be saved? And it's not really till Acts 15 that the church gets one mind about that question. So this is a huge deal, is it's now going out to all nations, irrespective. Before, the nations are welcome to come and become part of Israel. I mean, and we certainly have those examples in um, Ruth and Rahab and others, but it's always coming and becoming part of Israel and and joining Israel's worship. So now people can stay, um, people can stay, Gentiles, without having to move and become Jewish, they can actually worship God and, and be reconciled to Him where they are. Um, so that that's a, but all of that is done to humble Israel. Um, the, the example I use is it's like a child who has a great inheritance is misbehaving and being disobedient, so the parents eventually kick him out of the house. And then in part to 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 bring the child to repentance, they invite some street church in. And put him in the kid's room and let him play with his toys. And, and you know, day by day, the, the natural-born son walks by and he sees through the lit-up windows. Here's this orphan in his bedroom playing with his toys. You know, and that's, in effect, what we are. I mean, we, we were, God didn't choose some great and exalted people. He chose, Paul elsewhere says, the scum of the earth. I can, I can make these people my people, right? And it's a way to, to bring um, Israel to to repentance and humility, so that all of that was supposed to be in that point that I flew through so much that you didn't even get the blank. So, yeah, there's a lot more to be said. Okay, um, any other any other missing blanks or questions? You're you're next. You're not now. You're next. Yes. Just a quick question. Yeah. Uh, what was that? C.S. Lewis. Um, saying that you said about a penny and a pound. Oh, yeah. I, gotta, I can give you a copy of it right here. I have, Daniel got me to photocopy. This, this copy of C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity is, was actually, Mom, do you recognize this? This is my dad's. This is my father's. It has his underlining and handwriting in it. 
And um, it's this chapter on pride, which is fantastic. And the quote, I'll be happy to reread. Daniel very helpfully told me, you want to photocopy and enlarge that. Um, okay. So Lewis is dealing with the question of how can then can... God hates pride, and he's argued, really, pride's the prime vice that leads to all others, and he makes a big deal out of how pride is competitive, that people who drink can drink together. People who just want wealth can be wealthy together. It's pride that makes me want to have more than you, um, and so it's fundamentally competitive, and so it drives people apart, and he goes on, then if that's the case, how then can religious people be proud? And yet we see, and Jesus sees all sorts of religious people in Luke's gospel be proud, Which leads to the quote, that raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is... They pay a penny's worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow man. Which is exactly what we see in that Pharisee. Oh, God, I am thankful you. There's the humility. I couldn't have done it without you, Lord. I, you know, I, I give you the credit. All the praise goes to you for how good I am, which allows him to compare himself to the tax collector right next to him. And so, yeah, Lewis is very pithy. He's on the money. And I'll be happy to give you this copy of this quote. It's just a photocopy from the book. But if you haven't read Mere Christianity, it's, it's a great, quick read. Lewis is a, a fun writer to read. There originally addresses given over the radio during World War II. Um, so, anywho, that's that quote. Sarah. Okay. I was thinking while you were preaching about uh, the Old Testament and is Christ's humility depicted in the Old Testament? Because I know his suffering is, but I don't know of any specific examples of them predicting his humility. Like the sheep that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Those types of things. But I was talking to Pastor Daniel about this earlier, even this morning. There's a sense in which God is humble, and there's a sense in which he's not. A lot of what we mean by humility isn't present. To the degree that I've defined humility as recognizing your relationship to God, it becomes a contingent category. You can only be humble in rela- as you see yourself in relationship to God. So how then does God himself be humble? Now, there are ways, I think. I think God's patience is a demonstration of humility. Um, I think God's willingness to call it not be ashamed to adopt us as his family, demonstrates some humility. But much of what we mean by humility really is limited to the creature and and only understood contingently as creature. Um, Jesus can can demonstrate aspects of humility the Father is, is not going to as he submits himself to the Father's will or as he seeks the glory that comes from his Father. But how, how can God the Father seek the glory that comes from God the Father? Like, it starts to not work. It is in some, when I say contingent, do you get what I mean? It, it, it's in relationship to something else. You can't look at it in and of itself. You can only understand, understand humility, as I've defined it, as you see yourself relating to God. Well, what happens when you're God? So I think there are aspects of God that we can point to, like his patience. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He... 
um, is mindful of us that we are but dust, that, that demonstrate humility, but much of what we mean by humility is also then going to be unique to the creature as the creature relates to creator. So um, your question about Jesus, I'd say all those passages that speak, even the one cited in Matthew, your king comes to you meek and lowly as he, riding on a donkey, that's quoted from Zechariah 9. Um, Isaiah 53, the entire suffering servant motif is, is humble. Um, he, he doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't cry out. He, he, all these injustices are being done to him, but he does not yell and scream. Those, that's demonstrating humility. Um, but not nearly as emphasized as the, the triumphant Messiah motifs, which, of course, we, we generally resonate with the passages we like. So, oh, here's a passage about, I mean, well, the same thing's true for us, right? Oh, here's a passage about what, all the good things God's going to do for us in heaven. Let's, can we knit that and put it on the wall? You know, and oh, here's a passage about, about, you know, how filthy I am. I'm just going to skip right over that one. And so here's this Messiah who's going to come and exalt Israel. And the nations are going to come and do homage, and they're going to they're give tribute, and it's going to be glorious and wonderful. Yeah, those... And there are a lot of those passages. I mean, Psalm 2 is kind of the chief among them, but there's tons of them. They really liked those. And they had glossed over or had not synthesized fully the, the other motif, the suffering servant motifs, um, Isaiah 53 probably being the chief one. So probably verse for verse, there's a lot more triumphant Messiah language than the suffering, but there's certainly enough of the suffering Messiah texts to, to justify, like, hey, you should have known, you shouldn't have missed it. I mean, their mistake is not um, innocent. But yeah, there, there's a lot more of the triumphant Messiah passages, at least as I'm thinking through the Old Testament. So, good, good question. Next. Anybody? Dave, you got something? You're looking like you're almost going to ask a question. He does. Somehow we're going to link this to creation. You're, Dave's going to somehow link this to creation. I'm, yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the, okay. Six, the six days. <laughs> no. No. Did you say that every, every sin, no matter how small, is related to pride? Yes. Actually? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, so let's, this is something that, that Jeff was telling me. One of the things he wanted me to say, Jeff does a great job of telling me how I could do a better job preaching. It's, it's very helpful. Um, no, no, it is. It is. He made a good point. He was saying that the way I presented it, by skipping over, by really rushing over the fall and how that upset the apple cart, you might conclude that God's coming and just wants to flip things upside down, when the reality is we flipped things upside down. He wants to put them right side up. And, and so if you think back to the fall, right, what's, what's the fundamental issue? The fundamental issue is the snake says you can't trust God you can't trust his motives. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's keeping a good thing from you. And so Adam and Eve decide they want to know objectively. They don't want to trust God. So in other words, what God's saying is, trust me. This is not good for you. Um, and the serpent's like, why don't you eat it and know for yourself? And so that fundamental question, am I willing to relate rightly to God? If, if he is God and I'm creature, then I am ultimately contingent, and I have to trust him. And they're unwilling to do that. They, they want to know for themselves, and they find out for themselves how uh, much good it did them. And so every act of sin, in a sense, is me saying, I know better than God. 
I, I, my wisdom is greater than his. My rights are better than his. Every time I displease him, there's a sense in which I'm acting selfishly, autonomously. And there's a sense in which you can say, who, who on earth do you think you are that you think you know better than God? Who on earth do you think you are that you think that I'm saying I could say this to myself, not you, Dave, that, that you think you can do whatever you please? So, so all sin has within it this sense of self, either an overestimation of what I think, an overestimation of my importance, an overestimation of how my desires and what I want to do are of more importance. So yeah, pride links up with every sin in some sense. You could track every sin back to the wall with pride. So in one sense, pride teams up with everything else. Um, it's also the only sin that's fundamentally spiritual, right? Um, Lewis makes a point of this in his chapter as well. This is not a thought original to me. But, you know, you think of most other things we call sins. They involve doing things. Um, pride's just an attitude of the heart. It's why it's so hard to deal with. Because, like, if you've got to quit drinking, there's something to do. If you've got to, you know, whatever. Uh, there are things to do. Pride. Fight pride. Very quickly, you'll start patting yourself on the back, feeling good about your, your uh, attempt to fight pride. <laughs> But there aren't many people like me so concerned with fighting pride. Um, so, so that's how pernicious it can get. Uh, is, is that where you're going, Dave? Or, or is that is that atmosphere where you're getting? Or do I, just ram- I ramble. I know I do. So it's okay. Yeah, pr- pride is a... Well, because at the end of the day, it's, it's a putting forward a self. You know, I mean, one of the things that's humbling is... I mean, think of epistemology. One of the things that's humbling is... Everything I know, everything, and I'd say this goes for, for everybody, whether you're an atheist, whether you're, what, everything you know, there's a measure of faith involved. Because I, I have to trust my senses, my memory, my reasoning. I have to trust all of that. And we know people who, because of drugs they've taken or, or, or trauma that they've received, they aren't thinking. Their senses aren't working properly, right? We, we, we call them crazy. We used to put them in asylums. And so we have to trust that we're not the crazy ones. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, why do I trust my thoughts? I have to trust that God made me so as not to deceive me. Why do I trust my memory and my, my sense perception? Um, at the end of the day, it's just an act of faith that the one who made me isn't a cosmic trickster. That the one who made me wants to be known. So all of my other knowledge in any field, in any area, sits upon that foundation of absolute, total, dependent trust. Because I'm creature. I could be deceived, right? There's no knowledge I can possess that I couldn't be wrong about in one sense. And I know that sounds troubling because the Bible talks about how you might know. Absolutely. In a creaturely sense that we might know. But I'll ask somebody, I'll ask anybody, if God wanted to deceive you, would you be deceived? Absolutely, necessarily. Okay, then we have to trust that he's not doing that. So there's faith. And everyone's got the same faith. This isn't just for the Christians, it's for everybody. I can ask the same questions to the atheist. Why do you, on what basis is rationality and reason warranted? And the second they give me a reason, that's circular. You know, um, all of us are assuming that. So, so all of our knowledge is predicated on trust. All of our knowledge is predicated on faith. Um, we, in that sense, we never get out of the garden. 
I mean, that, that's the same conditions Adam and Eve are, gonna ha- are called to accept. Trust me that I know what I'm saying when I say don't eat that. Yeah, none of us escape that. Any, any attempt at objective knowledge ultimately is, is fooling yourself because we're creature. So to answer the objection, what do, you, what do you mean the Bible talks about having knowledge and certainty? Yeah, creaturely certainty. D.A. Carson refers to it as existential certainty. I know things as much and as fully as a creature can possibly know some things. There's some things I know uh, that I couldn't know any better. But at the end of the day, I have to trust God with that. Does that make any sense? Or am I just hopelessly confusing things further? (laughs) That silence can't be good. Okay. Um, Yes, Dean. To go along with what you were saying about not trusting God in the the garden, Debbie and I are reading lately about Ahaz and Hezekiah and now Manasseh. Yeah. And it seems to me that the pride, too, led to their wish for a king. And that was not a good thing. Yeah, the very first king, if you read through 1 Samuel, um, there's a military issue where the Philistines are raising up. And Samuel comes in, and he tells people to humble yourself, call out on God, and sure enough, he delivers them. And they come back from this deliverance basically saying, that was humbling yourselves rough. Can we just have a king who fights our battles for us? That's what we'd like. And so it's a rejection of God's basically saying, look, if you will humble yourselves, I will defend and deliver you. Just live in dependence on me. And they do that once, and he's totally faithful, and they win. And then basically, we don't want to live that way. So can we just have a king like everybody else who fight our battles for us? And that's why they want a king, because they don't want to humble themselves and be dependent. Um, no, the pride is the, the, the foundational sin. And it's also one that culturally we have a hard time with, because... Um, we don't see many victims from it. And so most cultural sin, not that people even like using that word culturally, but wrongs, involve harming other people horizontally. And so where we see murder, rape, those types of things, our culture is quick to say that's wicked, that's not right, that's wrong. Pride? And we don't like proud people who treat each other with contempt. But what about the more subtle forms of pride? Culture doesn't have much to say about that. In fact, there's even cultural pushes to encourage pride. Um, you know, you, I mean, you, talking to yourself in the mirror, you're important. You're, you know, wash your face, girl. Yes. Oh, we're going there, are we? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's difficult. And, and, that's, and that's where I was trying to get at. Some have some tempted, attempted to try to package Christianity that way. So Robert Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral guy, he wrote a book called The New Reformation in which he said, Basically, he reframed the entire gospel as sin is low self-esteem. And the gospel is God coming to to tell you how valuable you are. And the problem is, if I'm right in what I'm saying about humility, that's putting you about as far away from salvation as you could get. Because if the whole point is, no, you've got to be humbled and see your dependence, then being told how God thinks you're just so great is the exact opposite message you need, you need to hear. Now, it's a half-truth. The reality is, there's a, is that God, what, God's love is amazing because he loves us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. And so, yeah, the part about God valuing us and God um, treasuring us like the apple of his eye is true, but it demands the corollary truth, and it's so amazing because he does it in spite of, not because of who we are. 
If you let someone think all that treasuring language of the Bible, which is absolutely there, God treasures us, we're like the apple of his eye, um, we are people for his own possession, he has loved us with an everlasting love. But if the second you let someone think it's because of something in us that deserves and warrants that, you just put the entire thing upside down. You put the entire thing upside down. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, okay. Oh, Sarah again. Okay, going off of that, um, pride's obviously something that all of us struggle with because we're still struggling with sin. Oh, yeah. And I was think, telling Nathan and Jared a little while ago that I went to a church in college that told us, you can't love God until you love yourself. <laughs> so I only went there once. Um, <laughs> but what's the yeah. best way to fight pride? Because What's the best way to fight pride? We're obviously struggling with it, and fighting it, if you're consciously doing it, can also become a struggle. Yeah. Well, I say there's two corollary ways to fight pride. One is deepen your knowledge of who God is. In other words, humility is the result of understanding who I am in relationship to God. So the short version is do a better biblical study of who you are and do a better biblical study of who God is. So... Um, a book like The Holiness of God um, or Knowing God by, by uh, J.I. Packer or um, A.W. Tozer's got some, I mean, there's some books you can read on who God is to exalt big God theology. Get God bigger than you think he is. God more glorious than you think he is. That will humble you. Um, the other is books on and studying the Bible's teaching on the sinfulness of sin, that we minimize sin. We, we don't think it's as bad as it is. So both of those will do. Both of those are necessary pieces you may struggle with pride. Well, we all do. For two things, we think far too well of ourselves and far too low of God. And so you can attack it from both ends. Make God bigger and better or have a better understanding of who we are. Um, the Bible assumes we love ourselves just fine. Um, no, because think of the example. What's the example of loving your neighbor as yourself? Because that's, that's the attempted exegetical argument for this is um, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you can't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor? That's the assumption, that's the logic, which is not what it's getting at. But Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That's the picture of loving your neighbor as yourself. And to which I would say, everybody does this. He sees a guy hurt on the side of the road and he puts him on his donkey. And he takes him to a hospital, to, a, to an inn, the, the, you know, the Middle Eastern um, equivalent of a hospital, says he'll pay for his bills, pay for his treatment. I've never met somebody with so low self-esteem that they don't take medicine because they don't deserve it, that they don't drive, let themselves drive their own car because I just don't deserve to drive a car today. I'm going to walk. That's not. So the assumption is the way we love ourselves, you got a car, you need to go somewhere, you use your car. you got a bill and you got the money, you pay your bill. We look out for our own interests. I've never seen someone not put on warmer clothing when they're cold because they don't deserve to be warm. These are the ways the Bible is assuming we love ourselves. Um, that when you're cold and you have clothes, you put them on. When you're hungry and you have food, you eat it. That when you're sick and you have medicine, you take it. You know, and that's the way the, the, the good Samaritan loves his neighbor. So we're to go do likewise. Um, which isn't to say that what the culture calls low self-esteem isn't a thing. I think it becomes much more helpful to look at that when you think of it in terms of honor and shame. And the Bible has a lot to say about honor and shame. And a lot to say about how feeling shame is not a pleasant thing. 
Um, and so I think a lot of what we view as low self-esteem would probably be more helpfully viewed as issues of shame. And there is such a thing as, being, or as wrongful shame, shame that you ought not to feel shame. Um, and then there's things where you should feel shame and you don't. <laughs> Um, who's, who's, uh, the New Testament speaks of some of these wicked coming generations who will glory in their shame, you know. Um, and so as a beginning way to address some of that, so I'm not trying to say what our culture calls low self-esteem is not a thing. I think it is a thing. I don't know if that's the best way to frame it, look at it, talk about it. I would begin to suggest a better way would be in the, the Bible's categories of honor and shame. But regardless... Um, that's not that's not factoring into loving yourself. The assumption is you love yourself because when you hurt your thumb, you tenderly care for it. You go ah, you know, which is exactly then how husbands are told to love their wives as they love themselves, because everyone nourishes his own body and cherishes it. You know, when some part of you hurts, you cherish it and you protect it, and that's precisely the assumption the husband's called on to love and cherish his wife, just like you do when you've got a part of you that's sore and hurt. You baby it, right? Okay, go do that likewise to your wives. Um, there's nobody I know who, because of low self-esteem, doesn't do that. You know, I've never seen someone not take the better parking space mm-hmm. for those reasons. Maybe they do it for other reasons. But I've never seen... There's probably more important people coming to the mall today than me. <laughs> I'm just not worthy of that space. Never seen someone think that before. You know? Um, anyway. That's the brief attempt to speak to some of that. I know I'm, I'm just... Oh, we got the pastor's wife in the back. <laughs> a rarity. Uh, so I mentioned to Jeremy, and I just wanted to say to Sarah, there's also a really awesome mm. pamphlet called yeah. um, From Pride to Humility by Stuart Scott. It's like 30 pages or something, if that is cheap. I don't know, five bucks oh, or yeah. something. Yeah. And it's really good to just kind of give examples. It's kind of <clears throat> lays out the putting off and putting on principles mm. of pride and humility. And there's even like a checklist, so it's pretty user-friendly. I mean, it's a hard read because it's very convicting, but it's a really good place to start. If oh, you, It is very convicting. And we may even have, I don't know, maybe there are some copies over there. But I have, had, I have stocked our bookstore with some copies of it. I don't yeah. know if we have any right but now. But it's From Pride to Humility by Stuart Scott. Oh, yeah. So Amazon probably has it, but definitely worth it. Yeah. I'd say another way, though, is, is, is keep... This is one of the reasons we need to stay in fellowship, because... Um, God will humble us through the body. <laughs> you know, think think about uh, just just dealing with sin, pointing out sin in someone else's life. That's humbling. Someone comes to me like, "Hey, you're uh, you're out of line over here," and I have to now in front of this person recognize my wrong, and be like, "Yeah, you're right." <laughs> and so that's one of the ways God uses to keep us humble. Right? Uh, is each other. So stay in fellowship with with other Christians who are going to lovingly you know, get in your face when you need your face gotten into. Um, if, if all you're doing is surrounding yourself with people who think like you and are not going to call you on things, that's that's not going to help at all. That that would be another way to fight pride. Um, and then just p- pray about it, right? I mean, there's not much that can be done. I'll give you a simple example. I, I ought not to, um, but I do care what people think about my preaching, right? Um, I'm aware of that. And there's not much I can do directly to take that on except confess it to God, which humbles me, right? So when I get ready to pray, Lord, at the end of the day, I hope some of my motivations for why I do what I do are good. I know plenty of them aren't. Partly of what I do in preparation is for the praise of man. You know, I love it when some, someone says, oh, that was really good, right? 
That's not good. That's not healthy. But there's not really much I can do about that directly. The first thing I can do is recognize that and not try to excuse that. The second is pray about that. If I'm praying and asking God, help me stop caring so much what people think. That's helpful. It's also humbling again. As we're recognizing our weakness, it is humbling. So I think the first step is even just to see where pride is in our hearts um, and not to excuse it. Um, see those places where I care inordinately what people think. Now, there's nothing wrong in being encouraged when a brother or sister comes and encourages you, hey, that was well done. It's when you start craving it, when you start looking for it, when you start anticipate, what can I do to get more of that? That's where it becomes an issue of worship. Um, And so so to get back to how do you fight pride, you got to see it and, and, and asking the Lord to expose it, asking the Lord to reveal to us where there's pride, praying about it, um, and, and having it on your radar is at least a first step of, of it. And, and again, these are not things that, that not... Lewis starts this whole section on, on pride by saying, this is the one vice I've never heard anyone who's not a Christian confess. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's not something the world's dealing with a ton. And, I mean, we don't like pride when we see... And so, and so one of the reasons why I had to start this message by defining pride and humility... I was talking to someone a couple months ago, and they seemed to think only pride was that sort of out of my way, I'm more important than you, you know, like sort of like movie villain pride. Well, of course that's pride, but that's not the pride most of us are dealing with. And if you only think of pride as that sort of out of my way, immortal, you know, then no one's proud, well, except one or two really, really bad people, you know. And once you start looking at pride much more subtly, you're like, oh, it's all over me. <laughs> and so that's part of, of it is we've inoculated ourselves from thinking we're proud. We just think of this one version, which is really a caricature of pride, um, is pride. And then we excuse all of the subtle variations and variegatedness of it in our lives. So, um, yeah. My mother. No, no, mic- microphone, mom. Mom, mom, you're not above the rules, mother. <laughs> The five people on the on the podcast insist. Yes, mother. She said, "Wanting our own way." Wanting our own way. Yes. <laughs> My mother's too good for the microphone. The microphone might be for mere mortals, but not her. Just teasing you, mother. Just, oh, Elsa. Yes, Elsa. Come on. I was just thinking of the um, common practice amongst the priests um, in the Catholic Church all these centuries flailing themselves and lying in the cathedral and the stones. Would that be, particularly Martin Luther, when he did that as a priest, I know in most of them it's prideful. They're trying to show how humble they are by flailing themselves, or is that man trying to subdue himself into humility? Um, yes. <laughs> it depends. Uh, certainly people can do, Jesus condemns, and we know in Jesus' day there are people who fasted and made it very clear so that everyone knew they were fasting. And Jesus said, they have their reward, right? But I'm sure there are ascetics. Go, go to Colossians 2. Um, I'm sure there are ascetics who don't do it fundamentally for praise of man. They do it because they think there's something useful in it. And Paul really calls it out here. Paul doesn't, Paul does very little engagement 
with the uh, philosophic community of his day, which is in itself a stunning um, snub. You think of how big Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, those guys are. And Paul's well aware of them. We'll see it here. He'll, he'll name some of it. But he does very little actual engagement with that. But here's one of the few places he does. So Colossians 2, um, verse 16, through the end of the chapter. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. I'll start. The aesthetics um, thought that basically the mental, spiritual life, this is a Greek philosophy, um, is the higher life, and therefore you would train your body through harsh treatment by, by eating food that didn't have flavor, that sleeping on uncomfortable bed, through harsh treatment, you would train your body not to crave the creature comforts so you could then attain to the higher, more spiritual, mental, noumenal world. That's the, that's the notion. Um, and Paul takes that on. It's sort of the opposite of hedonism. You know, hedonism would be the exact express opposite of asceticism. And, um, and so Paul, asceticism, the worship of angels going on up in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast the head from the whole body, nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit yourself to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Now here's the key, look at 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. It's, it's the wrong strategy. That, that's bottom line is it's not going to help. Beating yourself, flagellating yourself, will not restrain the flesh. It won't. So he just... Self-made religion. We, we came up with some doctrines. Maybe if I beat myself enough, if I make myself suffer enough, maybe if I, um, you know, they, they literally would have flagellums. They'd flagellate me like a little whip. They'd strike their back. And in the best cases, you did it in places and ways that no one knew you did it, so that, you know, you, you ideally weren't showing it off. But even if you did it for all the right reasons, it's worthless. And uh, that, there's Paul's clear statement. On it. Now, there are reasons, I think, for you know, self-discipline and, and not just giving yourself over to, to every desire. But it's not because by treating your body harshly, somehow sin's going to get restrained. I mean, and some of the early church fathers took this to extremes. I mean, Origen castrated himself only to discover that you're, you're, uh, as much as um, hormones and that part of your body amp up lust and sexual desire. It is not its source. The heart is. And so you can be in a very frustrated situation where you have literally now no fulfillment of that impulse and it's still arising within you, which is exactly what he experienced. Um, because harsh treatment of the body, and you don't get much harsher than that, is of zero use in restraining the flesh. So. Oh. Kingery in the back again. Well, is it is it pride that wants me to say something a second time, or yes, or is it pride, or is it pride that wants me to stay still? 
Yes. <laughs> no, no. I just, I just want to say something. Uh, I, I th- this is really crazy. Um, I, you know, when when I was growing up, I wasn't. I, 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 I didn't have all the, all the stuff it takes to be popular. And I was the kid, the the kid in the class that was was uh, not too liked. Didn't have a good personality. I I stuck out like a sore thumb, but and then 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 I got to thinking. Uh, you know, every kid has a sense of self destruction. You want to get rid of what, and I never realized that um, that had to do with pride. I I mean, uh, people I talk to about it say, "Oh, Dave, you just need a lot of self esteem. You just really need to think you're really a great guy and." And uh, your Jesus loves you so much; He died for you know that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And and not thinking that that Jesus saw me and and He said, "Oh my, I gotta, I gotta help that one. That one's really bad." Yeah. And and I didn't mind that when I came to realize that that God loved me because He He saw me needing a lot of help. But the fact is, people were telling me I needed self esteem. Right. And the fact is, I hated that that uh, the the personality and some of the the looks that I have because they just didn't give me glory right. from other people never realized that 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 it was because of pride I wanted people to think you know to be drawn to me because I look so good or right. because I have such a nice personality people are just drawn to me and it would give me a lot of glory but I think God saw me that I had a lot of pride, so he gave me some features that kind of <laughs> helped bring me down a little bit. I, I, it makes sense, Dave. It makes sense. There's a, you, logic, you're there's not, a logic to that. that you're not going to tell me I need self-esteem? Yeah. Well, no. And I'll tell you the really paradoxical thing is that a lot of people who are upset, again, I want to speak carefully. I am not. Part of my frustration with the whole self-esteem movement is it's such a complex. I, I'm just large... teasing about. I don't need any no, no, self-esteem. No, no, no. But I want to. I want to. I want. I want to address this. Is I, you, you make statements about it, and I don't want them to be totalizing, as if that deals with every case. But frequently, a lot of low self-esteem is really manifestations of pride, because the issue is why. Why is it so important to you? Why are you so upset about the fact that people don't think you're smart or people don't think you're good? If if you were walking through a hall of Olympic athletes, and you know they're wearing their medals and stuff, why would you be surprised? Why would that bother you? These are amazing athletes. If you really thought little of yourself, and these people are smarter and better and worth more than me, well, then of course it makes all the sense in the world that they're the ones receiving glory and honor, and not you. It's only because I want glory and honor, and I'm not getting it that I'm upset. Um, I, you know what I mean? Does that does that make sense? Like, I'm not I'm not saying all of it is. I'm not saying all of it is. I think it's also issues of misplaced shame and stuff. But I think a lot of a good portion of it is really the craving. The same part of me that would delight in praise is the same part of me that can get down if no one praises me. It's the same impulse. It's, it's just flip sides of the same coin. So don't hear me say it's all that. But that's a, a decent portion of it is all I'm saying. Anyway, we are, no, we're not at time. We've got five minutes. So any, we've got time for one more thought or question or rabbit trail. Um, 
Yes, sir. Now, there's about a dozen people who listen to the podcast who will have no idea what I'm answering if you don't speak into that. Good to go. Oh, gosh. Um, so you're talking about a little bit ago about Oregon uh, castrating himself and about the self-flagellation. So how does you saying that that's not a good thing fit in with the, the verse in the Bible that talks about if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, if your gentility is causing you to sin, why wouldn't you castrate yourself? Right. Like, why wouldn't you flagellate yourself if you're sinning? No, no, it's precisely that the, passage that Origen is reading. Um, I, and I think because he misunderstood the teaching of the passage, Jesus is, if, if plucking out my eye would, would prevent sin, it'd be a good strategy. I mean, no, seriously. What Jesus is saying is you can never get too, uh, too radical in your fight against sin. So he, the early church is not filled with people who literally are missing hands and eyes because they thought he was being literal at that point. Because um, the whole thing starts with an if, first of all. It says, if it's really your hand that's causing you to sin. Now, Jesus elsewhere makes it clear. Sin comes out of the heart, not out of the hand. But what it does mean is where you're dealing with an issue and you come up with a plan to fight sin, if that doesn't work, get more radical. And we're never allowed to say, I've, I've fought it as much as can be reasonably expected. Now, have you cut off your hand yet? No. Okay, then come up with something more severe. And there, it's not severity for the sake of severity. So if somebody's struggling with what they're looking at on the internet, they might need to get to the point where they don't use a computer. If you need to go to the computer, go to the library. Let, let everyone there see what you're looking at. Like, and that's going to be hard. It's going to put you out of your way, and it's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be humbling. But you haven't cut off your hand yet, have you? You know what I mean? And so the principle Jesus is making is in your battle against sin, you can't get too radical. Now, you don't just start there. But you certainly need to be willing to get to there if less stringent approaches aren't working. Um, and, and this is back to even humbling yourself. You know, when, when somebody humbles themselves and says, you know, I will forego my rights and liberties, and in one sense, I'll, be, I'll let myself be treated like a child. I mean, the person who says, I'm going to have to tell my wife we can't have a computer in our home, and we're going to have no smartphones, well, you can have one that has to be locked, and I'm going to go to the library if I use the internet because that's how serious. That is humbling. I mean, that's embarrassing. You can imagine the, the, the humility that it takes. And it's that humility that God honors. Um, when people humble themselves, he exalts them. When people are willing to say, you know what, I'm weak, and I'm willing to act as though I'm weak, and I'm willing to let people know that I'm weak because I, I fear God more than I fear them, and I hunger after righteousness more than I hunger after their praise. God honors that. I've seen that happen again and again and again. People humble themselves and they're dealing with sin and they treat themselves as though they are weak and then God lifts them up. But it's never harsh treatment for the sake of harsh treatment, which is, I think, what Paul's condemning. If you just beat yourself up enough, which is what the aesthetics did beat. Basically, you just got to keep beating your, your, uh, your, your flesh, your, your, your physical component, so that it's weak and beaten down, and, and it's not strong. If you let it get healthy and strong, it'll, it'll control you. That's absolutely not what's being taught by Jesus. Um, does that make sense at all? Yes? No, it, you, want to, you want to say something? Go. No, say no, no. I was saying it makes sense. It's the way it's worded makes it very easy for uh, mis misinterpretation and to yeah. take it in a very weird way. It just has me wondering if, you know, why he didn't word it in a way that would make what he was trying to say a little more clear so right. that there was less room for the rampant uh, <laughs> misinterpretation that categorized the Catholic well, Church in the Middle in, Ages. In the same, in the same, 
paragraph, the same sermon. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes it clear. You've heard it not to commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. Then it goes right into if your hand and your eye. So the context of hand and eye is not incidental. He's talking about lust. So you think that through, see what he's getting at. He's just told us, though, it takes place in the heart. And no amount of harm that I can do to my hand or my eye is going to deal with my heart. And so... I think you've got to isolate that verse by itself, not in its context, to somehow turn it into asceticism, which you know Rome absolutely did do. We can talk more afterwards. We're out of time. I don't want to hold you guys over. Thank you very much. See you all you. next week.